Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty uh, exciting founder. I think that, uh, you know, really we're going to be learning about how to create, you know, a, a company, you know, that has a, a model, a business model that is very, very strong, where you're able to really control your own destiny. I think that, you know, his journey, you know, personally and professionally really made him, you know, who he is today. Uh, and I think that you're going to find him remarkable. So I guess without further ado, Bill Powers, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. How are you? Very well. So born and raised in, in Boston. So how was life growing up there? Uh, it was great. It was, um, you know, I grew up in a blue collar part of town and learned some valuable lessons from really hardworking, well-intended people. And um, I wouldn't change it. It was, uh, it was, it was an interesting upbringing. And I know that uh, when you were 17, uh, a pretty uh, impactful event happened in your life, and that is that your father passed away, and uh, obviously a sequence of events happened there that, that really you know, made you learn a lot, a lot of lessons in life. So can you, can you tell us you know, what happened there? Yeah, my dad was an older guy. He uh, was in World War II. He was actually in Pearl Harbor the morning they were attacked. So I, I got a front row seat on watching how the greatest generation performed and behaved and treated people with respect. Uh, he was a really good dude. He was a good man. And he um, he taught a lot of life lessons. So although it's traumatic for any young person to lose a parent, um, it had a profound effect on me, uh, I suppose, positive and negative. But, you know, I'm not the only one that's been through tragedy. So um, I try to look at it as the glass half full. Absolutely. And what were what were those uh, big lessons that you take away or that you took away from from your father? You know, growing up, I'm sure that he's a uh, you know when 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 you have that type of uh, accountability and responsibility after you've served in in events like World War II. I mean, it's a uh, I'm sure it's remarkable you were able to learn from him as well. Yeah, you know, I'm a dad now. My son is 17, and. I think about my dad a lot because of that, but but a couple things that I notice and I talk about it today, particularly where we live in such a divisive, um, at times unfortunately polarized community. He, I've never heard him say a bad word about anybody. You know, he was always very measured. Um, he traditional Irish Catholic, growing up in Boston, 
uh, had a lot of dear friends from from his war experience. And he's just one of those guys that just, you know, was polite, was a gentleman, was very fastidious in how he dressed and how he spoke to people. And I, I just think he was a model of really dignity and he just conducted himself with, with such grace. That That's some of the lessons I remember. And then how did you get into, into basketball? <laughs> uh, what else were you going to do? I mean, you just start playing, um, you know, you're, <laughs> right. I grew up in a, I grew up in a way, a time where there wasn't other stuff to do. So you just, you know, you got on your bike, you went to the park and depending on the season is the sport you played. So in the fall you played football in the winter, you'd um, play basketball indoors or grab some skates and skate outside outdoors. Uh, it used to be cold back then. The ponds would freeze over and you'd just find a place to skate. And then in the spring you play baseball. Yeah. And then and in I, between I, in between you just box. Whoever you could hit, you just box somebody. <laughs> oh my god, that sounds dangerous. That sounds dangerous, Bill. You know, I'd like to also ask you because I know that uh, you know, after your your dad passed away, you know, I know that there was a sequence of events, you know, for example like losing the home. And I'm sure that that has also made you who you are today and and also dealing with uncertainty because I think that also being an entrepreneur is being able to be with uncertainty. So I guess it, what what happened, you know, during that sequence of events, and how how would you say that it has made you who you are today? Um, I would say that uncertainty is a good a good way to describe it. I mean, when you're a child and a and a parent passes, it's it's obviously shocking to to anybody. Um, unfortunately, my parents really didn't prepare for what I would describe as life events, so we ended up in a. Uh, challenging situation in terms of where we were going to live or where we would find a place to live. So that was, um, that was pretty traumatic for me. Uh, and I think it caused me to grow up quickly. And, you know, I remember as a kid, I always had $20, uh, hidden in my shoe or hidden in my bag or hidden in my wallet, you know, just in case there was now $20 to me back then was a ton of money, but it always was, Hey, how do we, how do we find, what if something happens? What do we do? And th those lessons really stayed with me. Got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why nightclubs? Um, I just, I, I don't know. It just kind of happened. I mean, I, I was, uh, I was in school. I started doing nightclub promotions and working, working, uh, working the door of some nightclubs. And when I finished, uh, my schooling, um, I had an opportunity to, uh, work at and run some large nightclubs. And then I also had the opportunity to uh, have my own. Um, and, you know, when you're young and kind of silly and single, you're just making cash, you don't really think things through. Uh, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to come from a childhood with a plan and, and two stable parents to say, okay, you're going to do well in school, then you're going to go to this college, then you're going to get an advanced degree. To me, it was, you know, how are we going to pay the rent? So I think that's probably how I ended up in that situation. And I say that with, with a big smile on my face because it wasn't a bad thing. It was just all I knew. I hear you. I hear you. And then after this is when you started working for American Radio Sports and Westwood One. So, so what were your lessons, perhaps like one lesson that you got from working at American Radio Sports and then one lesson that you got from working at Westwood One? I think the lessons are the same. I, I think that, you know, those were both sales positions. And I think that you probably, I learned actually that 
it's better to listen more than talk and don't sell what you have. Try to find out what somebody needs. And I think those two scenarios allowed me to grow fairly quickly in terms of being a revenue producer or a salesperson. Um, I had no intention of being a manager or, or growing or doing anything like that. Uh, I was just trying to make a living. But I would say the lessons to learn, to study, to be fearless, to be respectful, to work hard, that enabled me to, to start to develop a really strong sales career. Very cool. I mean, that's something that uh, people typically don't don't really get, you know, especially I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are thinking about fundraising too or selling, you know, uh, their product or the experience or whatever that is. But really when you are able to do what you just mentioned, which is to a certain degree fulfilling concerns, is where you're really able to take the closing rate to the next level. So I, I love that you touched on that. Yeah, I so, think though, and when you talk about closing rate, Alejandro, I think it's important that, you know, there are salespeople and sales programs that talk talk about volume, and, and certainly I think that has value. But as a as a salesperson, if you do your research and you're you're targeting the appropriate customers, uh, and not being afraid to get to the decision makers, it really doesn't become against it. It doesn't end up being about closing rate. It's actually communicating with people where you can develop meaningful partnerships to help solve a problem. And I, I find it much more rewarding to spend time there than just calling people uh, out of the blue. And is there like typically like when you were talking about like finding what people need? I mean, is, is there like a typical process that, you know, you've seen that it works when you're like engaging with someone and communicating with someone, especially for the folks that are listening? Yeah, I think it's different now. It would be very easy for me to say what what you should do. I mean, you know, I'm now an older guy, which is I've been through some things. So I think there's two answers to that question. One would be, you know, as a young salesperson, don't waste your time dealing with people who can only say no. So in other words, if somebody's the middle manager of some division of a company, they don't have the ability to say yes to whatever program you're representing. So don't waste time there and thinking that you're going to do a good job. I would highly recommend a book called Strategic Selling by Miller Hyman. I think what's more important is getting to a decision maker out of the gate and ask them to direct you to the right people. So when I was coming up, I used to uh, get on the phone early or late at night because typically CEOs or chairmen of companies or real, real decision makers would end up being in their office early without distractions or in their office late without distractions. And you could get to the people, you could get to the right people and have a conversation. And what I found was as a young person, those senior executives would give me the time of day more often than not because they realized that I was hustling and understood their schedule. In terms of what I do now, I would say that um, we have definitely a recipe at Cambridge Mobile Telematics that everybody follows. It's more of a team selling, strategic selling approach. Uh, we don't wanna talk about an account if we're talking to people who can only say no and can't say yes. And um, I think also when you have people who are able to collaborate and share in a team environment, everybody wins. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then after your experience with Westwood One, then you started at traffic.com and obviously traffic.com had quite an impact for you. I mean, in your professional career as well. And, and you were there for quite a bit for almost eight years. So, so what were you guys doing there at traffic.com and what was exactly your role? 
So uh, one of my mentors, uh, this was interesting. I was doing quite well at Westwood One, and one of my mentors, a gentleman named Al McGowan, um, reached out to me and said, um, I need you to meet me at this venture capital office in Boston. It was actually uh, Bessemer in their, their old office building. It was an old house. And he said, I can't tell you what we're going to, what we, <laughs> it was an unbelievable pitch. He said, I can't tell you what we're doing. Um, we only have funding for six months and you need to take a 50% cut in pay. And uh, I didn't have any children at the time. So I said, okay, that sounds good because I knew I wanted to get into a high risk, high reward environment. And at that point I thought venture capital was the coolest thing in the world. And uh, so I signed up for that. I was employee number five at traffic.com. And uh, we, we really grew. The business was the, the largest uh, private public partnership. It was with the uh, United States DOT. And we would give traffic information and sell advertising units against that on radio, television, and one of the first mobile pl phone platforms. Ironically, uh, we survived the 2000 dot, or the, the, the burst the bubble. But then post 9-11, it became um, under the Department of Homeland Defense to help cities with evacuation and things of that nature. Yeah, we ended up uh, going public uh, and then selling it to Navtech, the mapping company, and then Navtech subsequently sold to Nokia, the uh, phone, phone maker. And I'm sure that this for you as well was super helpful to see what, what the full cycle of a company looks like, no? It was very helpful. Um, it was rewarding. It was humbling. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. Really good lessons and, and really bad lessons. Um, I learned a lot, though. So what is the uh, top good lesson and the top bad lesson that you took away with you? I think the top good lesson was um, really strong leadership and having a measured approach and uh, communicating fearlessly but respectfully. Was you know We had a wonderful CEO. Um, he's, I talked to him just recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, wonderful guy, very measured, very balanced, smart, smart guy. Um, and the, 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 the worst lesson was the inverse of that. There were people that were duplicitous and backbiting and, you know, the more money that gets involved, the more you see the, the negative spots of some people. Understood. Understood. And then I guess the, um, you know, during this time as well, you know, it's a, you know, a very important event happened, you know, which led to starting the Luke Vincent Powers Foundation. So uh, can you touch on this? Yeah, it's very kind of you to bring that up, Alejandro. Um, in 2000, um, my wife and I uh, lost our first son, uh, Luke. Um, we had a very normal pregnancy and went in to deliver uh, Luke at a Boston teaching hospital. Uh, Luke died during delivery, uh, and later it became um, clear through various publications there were six documented preventable errors that occurred, which led to his death. Unfortunately, my wife at the time also nearly died. She um, became very ill, and she um, she had, oh, I think, probably seven life-saving surgeries. Uh, she was in a coma for well over a month. And uh, it was a very interesting time for me because I spent a month literally in the hospital uh, with my son in the morgue and my wife in, in a coma. And uh, that definitely shapes perspective. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So so I guess uh, how would you say that that shaped your, your perspective and also the way that uh, 
that you look at life because I mean obviously you know when these types of, of events happen um, you know everything is altered well I will say that it's not like a hallmark movie so when somebody comes up from a coma they don't just wake up and there's you know choirs of angels singing and everybody cries and then they drive home uh, it's very painful to watch um, for me I would also like to say I I, I wish uh, I, I wish I came out of it quickly, but, you know, for a fair amount of time, I struggled with uh, and still struggle with PTSD and having, um, you know, I was very angry at the time, very confused because on one hand, our son had died. On the other hand, I literally had to help my wife with the most basic of, of human tasks. So it was a really hard time. I would say that I came out of that through uh, a lot of therapy and a lot of prayer. And then that's when I turned the corner and started to feel really empowered about giving back and helping and, and making a difference. And so we started the foundation. We work with um, the teaching hospital in Boston uh, for an annual lecture series. Um, I've done a lot of public speaking for healthcare improvement in terms of um, what residents and doctors and others should be, should be going through. You know, the old standard of hospitals is if you're not awake for 25 hours and it's you know not us against the world you're you're weak um, and when delivering delivering children and delivering a life you should probably be a little more measured than that that feels a bit reckless to me so that's the type of stuff we we try to do and and i'll say it i say this quite often i'm not okay with what happened but i uh wouldn't change anything we have a beautiful son lorenzo who's now 17 who is absolutely the joy and light of my life. And he um, he is just a wonderful kid. And obviously, Lorenzo, what a wonderful name. I'm a little bit biased because I'm Spanish, but <laughs> good, yeah, good, so, choice. good choice. So I'm Italian, Irish, Spanish, and German. And my middle name is actually uh, Vincent Vincenzo. So we were going to go with Lorenzo Vincenzo, but my last name is Powers, so it kind of fell flat. <laughs> So he's, it, he's Lorenzo William. So, so I know that, uh, you know, now fast forwarding to your, to your latest chapter. I mean, obviously here's the time where you brought, you know, your, your own, you know, business to life. So I know that there was a time, you know, where you were approached, you know, in 2010 by uh, a private equity friend. Uh, and you know, that obviously led to a certain of events that got you where you are today. So, so what happened there? So I, um, I had left, um, the combined entity of traffic.com, Navtech, and Nokia, uh, or Nokia. And, you know, I really was, um, you know, starting with a new company and, and doing well and on to the next journey. And I was approached by a gentleman who was a partner at a private equity firm here in Boston. And he said, uh, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. Um, and I met uh, my two business partners, Dr. Hari Balakrishnan and Dr. Sam Madden who are both tenured professors at MIT. Hari is one of the world's leading experts in mobile sensing, and Sam is one of the world's leading experts in artificial intelligence and uh, big data processing. We, we really hit it off, and they asked me to join as their partner uh, and be the CEO. I often chuckle when I hear that because it was the CEO of nothing. It was literally a couple of grad students uh, working with the university, developing code. Uh, they had done a research project at MIT called Cartel, which was car telematics. Um, this was back pre-2010. Motorola razors and smartphones were not 
as uh, omnipresent as they are today, that's for sure. <clears throat> so they had these really interesting, uh, interesting ideas, and I really enjoyed them. They're just really nice, wonderful people, and it felt like a good fit. So then what, what happened next? I mean, what were the next steps to really bring this to life, and what has been that journey so far? Yeah, so they, they asked me to join as their CEO, and I, you know, we had laptops and people sitting on milk crates and nobody making any money and just, you know, developing code and having conversations with people. Early on, we decided not to raise any venture funding um, for a variety of reasons, probably the biggest, which is um, we really weren't sure where the business was going and to, and to raise money just based on our team and giving up control probably didn't make sense at the time. Um, so we, we felt really good about where we were going, but not really sure where that journey was taking us, if that makes any sense. So we raised the National Science Foundation grant, which was brilliant. I would encourage all young entrepreneurs to look into that. Uh, I put up a personal credit facility and off to the races we went. Probably seven to 10 months after that, we, um, we negotiated a $500,000 pilot with one of the largest auto insurance companies in the world and uh, to help them solve this, this notion or this problem of uh, insurance-based telematics on the smartphone. Um, At that forward. point, like what, what, what ended up being the business model so that the people listening get it? Of so, mobile telematics. Uh, it was a SaaS, it's a SaaS model. So uh, we uh, record driving behavior on smartphones. It is an opt-in model. Uh, we do rewards for good driving and uh, we receive a fee from our insurance partners or automotive partners or our wireless partners, um, which is a monthly recurring revenue service fee. And we um, we're currently operate, we're currently operating in 25 countries around the world with close to 40 customers. And everything started with a 500,000 contract. Is that right? Well, it actually started before that, but yeah, that was the first, that was the first. <laughs> of course. I mean, the first good validation, no? I mean, not, not bad. Yeah. Not I mean, bad. but to be, to so, be fair, to be fair, that was a pilot. So, you know, that could have gone yeah. south in a hurry. We've been very lucky and very fortunate. <laughs> we've been very lucky and very fortunate along the way. I mean, this is, I always feel uncomfortable talking about this because you say the words and it sounds easy, but there was, there was and continues to be many sleepless evenings. Got it. I mean, maybe like one sleepless evening that uh, ended up, you know, you ended up making a decision and that ended up being a good, uh, a good choice that maybe you can share with us. Yeah, I, I think I think along the way, Hari and I in particular really focused on uh, keep getting to the next milestone and, and keep maintaining control. Um, I think the biggest thing we've always done is we're really customer centric. And, and we communicate a lot with our customers. Um, and that trust has been built over the last decade, which is really remarkable to witness and continues today. And, and if you fast forward to what's happening today with these uncertain times, our, our business is thriving and our relationship with our customers has gotten even deeper. Got it. I mean, I, I, I would like to, you know, if you could like describe to, especially to the listeners, you know, what does it look like when you remove the who is right and you really embrace the human relationships and, and, and you do that with big customers? Like, what does that look like? Um, well, I think through my, I, I can only speak through my lens, 
but what it looks like is, you know, the person that you're talking with or trying to solve a problem for or negotiating with, that person is typically dealing with the same issues you are, whether it's in the middle of a global pandemic or a sick child or a problem with an employee at work. So as opposed to negotiating, I think we've done very well with just collaborating, collaborating, communicating with each other um, to find out who has what needs and, and how can we create long-term meaningful partnerships that result in everybody sharing the risk and everyone sharing the reward. And we're in a position as an organization because we've maintained financial and physical control of our organization that we're not, we can be creative in any deal we strike. Very cool. Very cool. And I know that you guys have raised uh, also quite a bit of money. I mean, obviously you guys were in very good shape, you know, controlling your own destiny, but SoftBank came knocking. Yeah, I mean, I, I expected this this topic to come up, Alejandro. So, so let me <laughs> let me say that um, nice. I, I want to make sure that that everyone who hears this understands, um, in spite of what you might read, SoftBank uh, is a fantastic business partner. Um, we were not raising money. We did not have a banker. Uh, we've never had any debt. We have never had. Um, any any concern like oh my goodness we need to go raise money uh we were just growing organically and, and quite frankly happy to do so because our profile was increasing many uh large private equity firms or growth growth equity firms came knocking and wanted to talk and i'm very proud to say we we talked to all of them and met with some of them uh whether it was a small vc or even an investment banker we talked to everybody because it was an opportunity for me to feed my intellectual curiosity and learn along the way. And when we learned, uh, we got better for the next conversation. So we were introduced to our partners at SoftBank through uh, a mutual connection, a professor friend of one of my business partners. And the process went very quickly. Um, and we had received three term sheets throughout the process. Um, but term sheets is probably not the right word what what a deal would look like you know indication of interest type thing uh throughout the process and softbank was depending on how you look at discounted things the second or the third highest valuation we received they were not the highest and so what i try to stress to people is everybody sees the headline of 500 million but 500 million was really just a result of the growth and the stability and the revenue our company had at the time softbank is a true minority investor they are a fantastic business partner. And for those who aren't familiar with SoftBank or the Vision Fund, beyond the headlines, they have this group called the Operating Group. And the Operating Group's sole purpose is to support companies and entrepreneurs and founders. And they connect you with other folks within the SoftBank ecosystem or even outside the SoftBank ecosystem. So it could be government affairs, it could be countries, it could be rideshare uh, it could be uh, shipping companies. I mean, there's so many things that we've used them. They've been so helpful for. Uh, you can probably hear in my voice, I, I tend to get a little bit uh, protective of that because I'm sure if you asked our partners at SoftBank, do they have some things they'd like to do over? Yeah, probably. Uh, but that's their answer to give. I can just tell you my experience has been uh, really unbelievably collaborative. Got it. Got it. And and let me ask you this: If let's say if you were going to sleep tonight, Bill, and it's an unbelievable snooze. I mean, you wake up 
in five years, and you wake <laughs> up in a world. I mean, unbelievable news, right? And you wake up in five years, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Cambridge Mobile Telematics is completely realized. What does that look like? So I think one of the reasons that we started our company and um, really why SoftBank had an interest in us and what our vision has always been was to somehow power this future of mobility. So if you look what's happening today, two years ago, three years ago, or five years from now, I think you need to look at it very holistically as a continuum. And more people are going to um, be transported in different ways. More people are going to be moving around um, themselves or product or services differently than they do now, whether it's autonomous driving. you know, We're agnostic to the data source, so it could be a phone. It could be uh, one of our IoT devices. It could be the information from the vehicle. Quite frankly, it could be um, something that we haven't thought about yet, an autonomous driving. The thing with autonomous driving is those intelligent vehicles are perfectly capable of communicating and driving. The problem with autonomous driving is there's other human beings on the road, and human beings are flawed and unpredictable. So we believe that our intelligence five years from now will be at the center of that future or reality of mobility. Very interesting. And and obviously, I mean, now, you know, it's it's been a remarkable journey uh, with the business. And I'm sure that, you know, there's always lessons. But I, I'm guessing if you had the opportunity to go back in time, and, and obviously, you know, like it's impossible to do this, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Bill, uh, that perhaps is thinking about launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? That's a great question. I would say um, don't be as angry. Shut up and listen more. Got it. Wow. I love that. I love that. I love that. So, Bill, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. It was great to meet you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.